The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Pete Sweeney, and I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with the chairman of PAG Group, Wei Jen Shan. PAG is well-known. It's one of Asia's largest private equity investors. Shan himself is interesting in several ways. His resume includes stints at TPG, JP Morgan, did a stint at the World Bank, taught at Wharton. And that's all the more impressive given Shan's personal history. Shortly after graduating from elementary school, China went through a 10-year giant political convulsion known as the Cultural Revolution, into which Shan sort of fell victim, in educationally at least. He never went to high school. Instead, he was sent down to the Gobi Desert to learn how to be a hard-laboring farmer. However, he emerged from that experience not unscathed, but he survived it and went on to prosper. He went to the States, uh, earned a PhD, had a successful career in the country before coming back to Asia in the 90s. This is all documented in his new book, Out of the Gobi, available from Wiley. It's a fascinating I do recommend everyone pick up a copy. Mr. Shan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> the Cultural Revolution saw the shutdown of the Chinese education system, and you were one of the first to emerge of that generation from a system that had shut universities and high schools and then went to school in the States. Are you concerned that this great mechanism for cultural cross-understanding is, is breaking down and trickling into other parts of the economic relationship? There's suspicions about the Confucius Institute's there's worries that, you know, these new students are not becoming more sympathetic to the United States, but are coming back profoundly sour on the United States and, and having their dreams disappointed, whereas you had a, a very different, more positive experience. I think that uh, the foreign educational systems or institutions should have more confidence in their ability to provide a high-quality education. And people come from that experience having probably different takeaways and that is very normal. But by and large, you want to train people to be independent thinkers. And uh, if you have confidence in your system, in the quality of the education, you will know that you eventually would uh, educate people who are independent thinkers and who will be supportive of a value system that is universally good. Yes, one would hope. Um, unfortunately, the whole... Thing I think that's very short-sighted. No, I, uh, I, I, if, I, I agree. You know, if people are concerned about uh, getting foreign students to adopt your own value system, to uh, be sympathetic with uh, your views of the world, I think that's very short-sighted. In fact, uh, that reflects only uh, insecurity on your own part. Well, it seems to be rising on both sides in a way. And, I mean, it's quite strange. I mean, 10 years ago, I think there was a lot of comfort, at least in the United States, when I was studying China myself among the academics and the business professionals, that this was a relationship that was ultimately heading in the, in the right direction, you know, that it was understandable that China was having some hiccups in terms of development, that, yes, its markets were distorted and there were state banks and, you know, it was a single-party state. But fundamentally, the United States and China would get closer to this universal good system where China becomes a stakeholder in the world order. And now, as unpopular as Trump is among certain parts of the Democratic Party and even within his own party, um, the one thing everybody seems to be behind him on is we need a harder line on China. I think that if you look at the experience of China's economic growth in the past 40 years, you find that the Chinese system has moved away from the old system under which 
almost all economic activities were controlled by the government to a system more dominated by the market that we have today. And in that process, you find that people who have received their education in foreign countries, including the United States, have contributed to the progress in the direction of the market. For example, the governor of the central bank uh, right. today, Yi Gang, was educated in America, became a professor, a tenured professor in American University. So I think that uh, our hope is that China will move more and more in the direction of a liberal market. I think there's disappointment among a lot of people that uh, that progress has been slowed down and that process may have stalled, which is regrettable. And in my view, that China still has a long way to go to open itself up to foreign trade and investments to reform its economic system more in the direction of the market. So in, in China, there's these two generations. There's the generation that came out of, of the Cultural Revolution and saw China come from a very, very, very poor country, yes. you know, with a destroyed education system, so on and so forth, you know, to, to the world's number two economy. And then there's the children, their children, some of whom have grown up with never having an economic recession. And their attitude towards China's prospects seems to be fairly much more optimistic or, or aggressive in some ways. So and this, this shift has evidenced itself in, in the way that Xi Jinping has kind of conducted his foreign policy and business policy versus Deng Xiaoping, you know, who Deng Xiaoping was kind of saying, hide your, you know, bide your time and, and lay low. And now, you know, there's definitely popular support for the idea that, that China should be more aggressive, should be, you know, more confident in its own model and less willing to go along with, with the West, you know, with the United States and, and more confrontational. Um, do you think this is due to a a weakness of understanding of, of what happened in China before? When it comes to per capita income, China remains a poor country. It ranks, I think, number 72 um, in the world in terms of per capita income. So China remains a poor country, and China has still a long way to go to develop, develop itself. Now, the younger generation may have this nationalistic feelings, which probably are natural uh, with uh, younger folks, but they are not grounded in reality. And in fact, China has been able to develop because it has opened up to foreign countries, not because it has remained a, a closed economy and closed system. So I think the young people have to realize that where China is in the world and have to realize that China still has a long way to go to develop itself. And this hubris about China's rise doesn't really help. In well, fact, it's you, counterproductive. I mean, yes, and, and certainly China is not the only country to suffer from such issues. I'm, I'm curious, however, specifically in the business application. So if we take the international aspect out of it, we look at what happened in China in 2017 with, like, the entrepreneurship surge. You had a lot of, like, young Chinese companies being founded by young entrepreneurs demanding incredible valuations, you know, going through money like water on this assumption that everything was going to work out just fine. And I know I've talked to other private equity and venture capitalists who are long awaiting some sort of correction in the Chinese capital markets to, to make these people become reasonable, as opposed to just assuming everything was going to work out and, and you'd be worth 50 times your your, your earnings. Do you see any no, signs 50 of 50 times is, is a reasonable number. <laughs> you know, people are talking about 500 times. Right. I mean, so, so are, are you feeling like a, a correction underway? 
not only correction is underway, I think correction has already come. I think last year, by and large, especially in the tech sector, the valuation has come down probably by 30, 40 percent or even more. And capital was draining out in China because of the crackdown on shadow banking system. And uh, the uh, credit tightening has contributed to the drying up of capital. So valuation has come down quite substantially and will continue to do so. A number of private companies, tech companies, uh, went bust uh, because they couldn't uh, uh, get the capital to support their spending habits. And, and I think this will continue. Well, the poster and, uh, child would be like the, the bike sharing. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. The, the uh, investors will increasingly, I hope, look at the fundamentals of business as opposed to you know, the crazy valuation that we have seen in the past uh, several years. Some economists look at what's happening in China right now and blame the trade war and just kind of anxiety about this confrontation. Others point the finger more at the, the campaign against shadow banking, you know, which is instituted to kind of de-risk the, the system. And there's mixed views on that. Uh, I've heard some say, well, cracking down too much on shadow banking is bad. This is the way the private sector got all its money. If you turn off the taps, they'll never be able to get money from the, from the state-owned banking system. And so the whole slowdown in China's economy is due to this due to this over enthusiastic campaign. Others think that it had to be done. Where do you come down on that question? I think that uh, both views are correct. <laughs> <laughs> that is, it is true that the crackdown on the shadow banking system, which went on for the past 20, 24 months, was a contributor to the economic, uh, the slowdown in economic growth rates, and especially to the slowdown in the private sector in the past year. And it especially contributed to the weak sentiment, business sentiment in the private sector. But at the same time, China was building up a credit bubble, especially through the shadow banking system, P2P, small loan lending, and so forth. So it was necessary to delever and to tighten the credit with regard to shadow banking. So I think both things are correct. Is it making it any difference for you know, foreign private capital investment into China? One way or the other, like the new it makes some difference. The valuation has come down. So, if you own the company, if you want to sell the company, the valuation now is lower. I would say than about a year ago. But I think it's necessary if you look at the long term for the health of the economy to take the bubble out of the system. And the truth of the matter is, foreign investors in their companies that they have invested in China, uh, it has been historically very difficult to borrow from Chinese banks anyway. And therefore, by and large, we are low-geared and low-levered. Um, the impact when it comes to the crackdown on the shadow banking system is much more on the domestic private sector, private companies, as opposed to foreign invested companies. Well, so on balance, the big excitement, I think, the, the new wave of investment is looking at the Chinese consumer. Yes. Um, but there's been some kind of mixed signals about what's happening with that. And there's also questions about how and whether foreign brands will be able to win this next battle for the, the, the Chinese wallet, as it were. I mean, you've mentioned everybody looked at, like, Apple, you know, losing a bit of share. Um, Samsung cell phones have, have had some problems of their own creation. I mean, a lot of people expect for like Chinese brands to come up and, and really start dominating. And that's reinforced by, you know, President Xi Jinping going around on visits and saying, well, we need to build our, our self-reliance. You know, if we're going to have this trade war, we need to not be dependent on the United States for chips and stuff like that, which indicates even more favor 
for domestic firms over foreigners. Um, on balance, do you think uh, foreign companies should be more conservative, or, or is this just bad weather? I think it's very difficult to generalize. It's not just foreign companies and domestic companies or Chinese companies. It's the specific business, specific industry, and specific companies. And if you look at the winners in the Chinese market, which are foreign firms, you know, you have, for example, Liang, China, which is predominant uh, in their industry, fast food, uh, casual food uh, sector. You have McDonald's being very successful in that market. General Motors uh, is the largest uh, seller of cars in China. And you have Qualcomm, which derives 65% of its sales from, uh, from China. So you know, Apple, at one time, was the second largest uh, market share leader uh, in China. And uh, now it has come down to the fifth position. And Samsung has come down even further. But that market is just very dynamic, I think, to win in that market today, brand is very important, and uh, you have to be very competitive. And some people are winning, some people are losing, and I think that's just completely normal, regardless it's foreign or domestic. I don't see necessarily domestic firms will win. I don't see necessarily foreign firms will win in that market, and the market shifts. Hmm. Well, it definitely won't be easy either way. Well, for the companies that PAG has invested in China, most of our companies are doing very well. You know, some of them are strong market leaders, even though they're foreign-owned. For example, we control in the industrial gases, which has about 36% market share as independent gas supplier in China. And we have grown our cash flow and revenue very strongly in the past two years, uh, much beyond our own expectations in the underwriting. So in terms of the the, the changes that have come from the trade war, one of the big noticeable ones, in addition to the the discussion about trade, is this pressure on investment restrictions, like which sectors are being locked off where. You know, the United States, for example, you know, is is pushing heavily against Huawei. They've blocked Alibaba from buying MoneyGram. Um, The the CFIUS has gotten all these new powers to be more aggressive. How big of a problem do you think this is going to be in terms of letting – I mean, is this a permanent state of of trade warfare on the investment front? In general, foreign direct investment is good for the recipient country. And historically, China has invested very little in America. So the impact on the Chinese economy when there are restrictions on investing in America would be not very significant. For example, last year, China's investment to America dropped by more than 95%. So it's very insignificant amount. On the other hand, American investment in China has been quite large. Mm. You know, we know some large companies having invested very heavily in China, including P&G, uh, General Motors that we mentioned, and Apple and the like. So I think that uh, it is in the mutual benefit and interest of both countries to keep the door open as opposed to shutting them. One of the conversations that's happening in the States now, I think, or in the West more generally, is the debate over whether the Chinese model is successful. So I think in earlier phases, there was this kind of complacency. They're like, well, yes, you know, China is not reforming it, but if it doesn't reform its capital system, if it doesn't reform its politics or whatever, the experiment will fail and it will collapse and there'll be a Lehman moment or something like that. And there's this long cycle of people saying China's going to blow up. They can't possibly keep on distorting their capital markets this way. They can't restrict the flow of information. It'll be bad for innovation. And that hasn't happened. And now what you have coming out of the Trump administration, I think in particular, people are saying the Chinese model works and it's a threat. 
and we should imitate it. You know, we should go after their tech champions and, and we can use security or whatever excuse we have, but we should have our own industrial policy and we should be restrictive because that's the way that China got ahead and we should do the same thing. What do you say to that? Well, I would say, what is China model? I think that in the extreme, people think that the government control of resources, government control of economic activities is the China model. But as I described in my book, Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America, 40 years ago, when I was a hard laborer in the Gobi Desert, all economic activities were controlled by the government. Where was China at that time economically? It was in ruins. And China was a basket case. We couldn't even feed ourselves. We were starving all the time. So the government control of resources, government control of economic activities was not leading China anywhere economically. China was able to develop in the past 40 years only by abandoning that system, only by going in the direction of the market to such extent that today private sector accounts for a larger share of GDP than the state-owned sector. And I would think that to continue economic growth, China would have to move even more in the direction of the market opening up its economy, downsizing its state-owned sector, and make the market really the decisive force in resource allocation. And that is China model, which is not different from a liberal market economic model. And that's my view. One final question. One of the worries people have, outsiders watching China, maybe even some people inside China, has been this kind of signs, tentative signs of revival of nostalgia for the Cultural Revolution. Um, I lived in Harbin, for example. You go around in Dongbei, people are still singing the old Cultural Revolution songs. Um, and then there's been this kind of re-emphasis on ideology in terms of putting more party cells into, into private companies and increasing the voice of, of the state, the party, in private firm decision-making. I think it's very important for China and its people to learn a lesson from its most recent past. My book, Out of the Gobi, is a recount of the most horrific part of the Chinese history, including the Cultural Revolution. And it tells bitter-sweet stories, and there were bitter parts and there were sweet parts. The sweet parts come when China opened up to uh, foreign investments and opened these doors to uh, foreign exchanges. And I think the danger is the younger generation does not know about that part of the history. And if you don't remember history, history has a tendency of repeating itself. I think it's very important for people to remember that part of the history, to know about that part of history. And that's where my book, Out of the Gobi, has some relevance. Well, yes, it does. And congratulations on on your success after that. And uh, most impressive um, book. I recommend everybody uh, dip into it. It's a riveting read. Just one final question. Are you going to write a sequel? Your book ends in 1992 with you coming back to China. 93. Um, 93, sorry. Uh, Mm. Do you you have a sequel in mind? Uh, No. I think that uh, I think it's important to record that part of the history. So my book is a it tells my experiences, my stories, which are unique, but at the same time, they are very representative of the experiences of my generation. After that, uh, you know, everybody went their separate ways. So my book, next books will be on business topics, <laughs> like <laughs> well, investments. <laughs> we will look forward to those. We love business topics. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. I think that's all the time we have. And thank you all for listening. This episode of The Exchange is produced by Sharon Lamb. If you haven't already, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever you use to subscribe to podcasts. You can also check us out at Twitter at Breaking Views. Until the next episode of The Exchange, this is Pete Sweeney.